Welcome to your Breakthrough Blueprint. I'm your host, Becky Oste, a wife, mom, and trauma-informed marriage coach. After a decade of trying all the mainstream modalities of healing to save my marriage, I found myself two kids later separated and on the verge of divorce. That's when I stumbled upon the unconventional game changer of somatic work that not only resurrected my dying marriage, but bled into breakthroughs in my parenting, purpose, spirituality, health, wealth, business, and more in just six months. My intention with this podcast is simple. Through every weekly episode, my goal for you is that one, you realize how insanely collective our struggles are, that you're not even close to alone. Two, that you can laugh a little because God knows we need it. And three, that you walk away with actionable advice on how to design your unique blueprint for your breakthrough life. So get your earbuds in, grab your coffee so you can sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to a conversation that I'm so excited to be having. I've been following Kyle Spears on his podcast for years, ever since the pandemic, and I'm so excited to have him on today and to be able to have this conversation. So Kyle, how are you today? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So tell us, those who don't know who you are, a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. Yeah. I actually, uh, by trade, am a marriage and family therapist. I went into private practice and now I'm actually transitioning into coaching and consulting. But by trade, I have worked in private practice, working with complex trauma and PTSD. Um, also, what's something called known uh, known as a dissociation, and just helping people who have massive triggers exist and be freed and unburdened. And so that's been a huge passion of mine. In addition to that, I added kind of the journey of theology. So I went to theology school because I really wanted to study the intersect between theology and psychology. And so I've got my little seminary journey that I've been in sort of the midst of of as well. And I'm kind of in pause right now because I've got two little ones in diapers. Oh my gosh. Um, Yes. It is so, it's so busy. It's, it's crazy with, you know, the ministry and everything. And my wife and I, um, we, uh, been married for around 10 going on 11 years. She works in heart surgery, so she's got a very demanding job. So I have to kind of try to pace myself a little bit, but I do the best I can. That's so fascinating. She is heart surgery and you're a marriage and family therapist. So you help (laughs) mend the emotional heart wounds and she helps the physical. So Uh, fascinating. Yes. (gasps) Yes, absolutely. So, man, we may need to have you on to talk marriage on a whole nother episode. But for the purpose of today's conversation, you know, I'd love to talk about church trauma, spiritual hurt and healing like that area of our lives. And so could you tell us a little bit just about what your podcast is centered on? Yeah. So the podcast name is Truth Trauma Theology, and I have a YouTube channel and a podcast. And uh, what I do is I do typically interviews. So I'll have someone come on who is truly an expert in an area, like I did an interview with uh, Charles Kaiser and Elaine Heath on trauma-informed evangelism. They wrote a book about it. And so uh, it's just really helpful because I'm getting good resources into people's hands, but at the same time, it's very conversational. And I think Mm -hmm. people are attracted to conversation, hence you and I are doing this right now, Mm -hmm. but they just love dialogue. It's, it's sort of relational and a way to learn. And also it's just very, very human. So I do the interview pieces and then on Patreon, that's where I'm able to interact with a community. 
Um, and so what I do on Patreon is I'll do polls and I'll do, you know, more granular teachings on, you know, moral injury. What is moral injury? Mm -hmm. Trauma bonding. Um, this idea of wound mates. What does it mean to be a wound mate? Anyway, so that, that stuff I do more behind a paywall, but as far as the public piece, it's more the interviews and so forth. That's awesome. And how did you end up becoming the church trauma guy? What's the backstory <laughs> that led you to this work? Oh man, I am the church trauma guy. I love it. Um, you know, what's interesting is I was pr on a prayer walk one day and I was doing this theology journey and here I am in the middle of, you know, seeing clients and I'm just like, how do I, these two aren't really going together, like psychological trauma and theology. And then one day it was kind of this idea of like, like the Lord, I feel like was like, why don't you merge the two? And it was like, oh my goodness. And so I started doing, you know, research and I found out that the field of trauma and theology is kind of in its infancy. So I was like, oh my goodness, this is a burgeoning opportunity for me. And I started getting into it and doing interviews. And then I found that there was this sort of groundswell of folks who were like, oh my goodness, this helps to name so many things that I have felt inside of me and that I have felt in my culture around me, my community. This is going on. This, this idea of trauma, this idea of and not everything's big T trauma, there's little T trauma, but it just provided language. And then people re responded really well when it named their experience. That's kind of what I've seen. I love it. So what were some of the big T or little T traumas you experienced along the way? So uh, are you asking in terms of my childhood or just in terms no, of- No, in this church setting. Yeah. Spiritual setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, uh, big T, let me just start out with big T versus little T trauma. Big T trauma is whenever there's an experience that um, kind of changes the choreography of your body. And, and it, it's the body holds the story. That's my, my, probably my biggest mantra is the body holds the story. And so when we go through a traumatic situation, um, there, we get kind of stuck in the choreography of the past. Um, we get stuck in this almost like survival posture. And so the past doesn't actually become the past. So with big T trauma, when a big trigger comes up, that trauma and that trigger put a person in this like choreography of surviving and i think that the bigger ways of surviving is kind of like sometimes that fight or flight or freeze um i think of situations in my life where this will be one where i had like this stage fright thing that happened this probably be a little bit more little little t trauma but i had this uh situation where i was speaking i did this monologue and i could not remember the lines it was the most overwhelming moments one of the mm. most overwhelming moments I can think of. What ended up happening is it created some downstream effects where now when I when I was preaching or whenever I was speaking, I became phobic. My body was stuck in the choreography of that moment when I forgot my lines and I froze up. And so in some ways it was a little T trauma, but kind of became a bigger T trauma. And part of the reason for that is that that, sort of moment where I forgot my lines was actually related to things that had happened in the past and I didn't know it. So mm -hmm. sometimes when you have a big T trauma situation that happens, you're kind of like, this shouldn't be so big. It's bigger than you think it is oftentimes because of what it's connected to. 
So I think that to me is the journey for a lot of folks who are trying to look at like, is it big T trauma or little T trauma? I think that has a lot to do with the, um, the posture that it creates in your body of surviving. Like if it's really, really intense, then you know that it's big T trauma, but if it's smaller and more manageable and does not start to disrupt your ability to perform and engage in life, it's more little T trauma. And that's something that if left untreated can become big T trauma, but for the most part, you're able to function. And so you're able to kind of get through life. Mm, I love that. And I love how you, ex you phrase that, that trauma and triggers can put people in this choreography of surviving. So there's big T, there's little T. And, you know, what I notice for you, even on your podcast is you hold really safe space and objectivity for both sides of the conversation for, you know, the church, as well as maybe the member who's hurting. And you're also holding accountable the behaviors that are harmful. Like, how do you currently view your role in the church? Do you ever feel caught in the middle or do you identify as a member of your church still? Tell us all the things. Yeah. So it's been very uh, tricky. Uh, last year, talk about trauma. Um, I went through a situation where I did an interview with uh, a guy by the name of Douglas Jacoby. So him and I do this interview on what is a cult. I had no idea what was coming next. I, I thought. I was doing a video for my audience. And so after that, my family got threatened. It was crazy. Um, that's part of why I started Patreon, because these interviews that I do, they are controversial. Again, helping people to name things is not clean at all. And so in helping people to name things like spiritual abuse, that's almost like a taboo word mm -hmm. in church circles, right? You would think Christians would be more than willing to talk about how they're different from that. But I think again, there is a lot of there is a lot of collective trauma, which is a whole nother conversation. But after I did that interview, I kind of did develop a little bit of some PTSD from that, no joke. And so I kind of went off the grid and and so forth. But when I re-engaged, I re-engaged at a lot of those conversations um a little bit differently. I started to understand that, you know, there's more people who may come out for the barbecue than I thought. <laughs> and so I think in some ways, I definitely try to remain balanced. Meaning if I do like one side of the gender roles thing, I try to do the other side. Mm -hmm. um, if I talk about this part of this, I try to talk about the other. That being said, I definitely have become less concerned about fitting into a category. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm more concerned with kingdom. I'm more concerned with my allegiance to Christ. Um, and I think that's to me, the end game, not necessarily mm -hmm. what category I fit into now. And it's very interesting. You bring this up because this is where a lot of my conversations have been with people recently is it's, it's not so much like what camp you're in or this and that. Have you pledged your allegiance to Christ? You know, is that, I mean, he's got to be Lord. He's got to be savior. He's got to be sort of the, the rock. So yeah, I I think that categories are tricky and I don't know mm -hmm. that I fit very well into a clean, neat category. I love that answer so much. And I mean, like one thought is just isn't that isn't that what Jesus intended? You know, like that just kind of simplifies it. Like we get really caught in the categories and there's a million fractured denominations and we've got a different name for them all, you know, and <laughs> 
So I kind of love that. You're like above it in a way, not in an ego way, but just, you know, just the simplified fizzled down to like my identity is just I follow Christ. Um, is there a certain term that you use between like church hurt, religious trauma, spiritual abuse? Do you have a preference? So it's interesting. So in the the book I was referencing earlier, they talk about how abuse versus trauma are are different. Abuse really comes down to the practices or the approaches that create these downstream effects that we don't want in people. So for example, if someone's dignity feels shattered, or let's say we turn people into an equation, the people become a transaction, that approach, like let's say I want to evangelize and I want to look for sharp people. Okay, well, what does that mean to look for sharp people? And then who does that, who's not that? If I want to look for sharp people, that can create some real issues in terms of elitism. And I think in terms of those practices, if they're wide, wide practiced and get deeply embedded into how people think about outreach, then that becomes something that can cause trauma. So again, abuse is different from trauma. Trauma is the choreography. Mm. This is why I think it's so hard to talk about trauma in the church because that practice of, let's just say, looking for someone who's sharper, the practice of holding someone accountable for reaching out to 10 people a day or whatever it is, didn't necessarily give that choreography or that posturing to everyone, but it gave it to enough people, let's say. The people that years later get sort of freeze freeze up when, like from the pulpit, let's say they talk about evangelism and we want to get back up there and door knocking and all that. Let's say that happens. And in the in that sermon, your body just does something mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel good. That's reflective of PTSD, let's say. Now, to what degree and intensity of PTSD, I'm not here to diagnose that. But the the practice itself is not necessarily traumatic. It's the effect within a human being that is what creates those downstream effects. So again, post-traumatic stress disorder, after the effect, the the effect, uh, the the event, let's say years later, you're having these triggers, then what that kind of means is, is that you were affected in a way and in order for your body to release that burden or that choreography, there's a certain process that you have to have. In other words, you have to engage the body. If you don't move it in the body, Mm -hmm. you don't move it, which is why I think a lot of people struggle to help trauma survivors in the church Mm -hmm. because most times our theology does not incorporate the body Mm -hmm. oh my goodness that is a huge issue and one i'm obviously very passionate about yeah that's why i've loved your work for so long because it it was over the past couple of years post pandemic that i stumbled upon that book the body keeps the score started leaning into the whole idea and like you know school of somatic work and I had tried in a lot of different areas of my life to heal trauma, whether it was like church trauma, relational trauma, you know, stuff with family and a lot of the top down techniques that just keeps you talking or, you know, listening to something, all the stuff from the neck up. And it wasn't until Mm. finding, you know, this work of how to move trauma out of the body, how to get into the body, how to trust my body. Um, There is some associations there that I shouldn't trust my body or my emotions or my intuition because 
things like even the heart is deceitful above all things. Like I, I saw my body or my emotions as the enemy, as opposed Mm. to like signals or maybe even ways God was trying to communicate with me. Um, so I really just have loved the work that you do. There's a lot of alignment there. And with your PTSD, especially with that episode you put out on the cult, I actually remember that. Remember listening to it and it was fascinating and I thought a really good conversation. And then I was like, where'd Kyle go? <laughs> it <was> like he <laughs> disappeared. And then you let people know what had happened. And I was like, I can't even imagine what that was like for him and his family and how long the after effects of PTSD must have lasted for you. Um, I'm curious with that situation, like where were you getting threats from? Were you getting text messages or people emailing you? Was it members of the church? Like, tell us about that if you feel comfortable. No, you're good. No, it's interesting. It actually came from folks who were outside of uh, the fellowship that um, I really kind of was referencing. So for example, um, there are different forums uh, that people kind of uh, go to that are very much anti, let's say, establishment or anti this or that fellowship. Well, those forums took that video and sort of it like gaslit many of them. And so people were very flooded. Again, you were mentioning neck up versus neck down. I think that when we get flooded, like our amygdala, our, our limbic system is really charged. And so it created a, a very strong limbic response from people who um, had left this fellowship, I didn't completely understand the connections that they were making and so forth. Now I understand a little bit more, Um, but it really came down to, uh, we got a threatening email um, and with our address. And, you know, I showed my wife and at first it was like, uh, but nowadays, you, you just don't know how people are wired. I mean, uh-huh. when you think of all the school shootings, when you think of people running up on people and just literally murdering them now, mm-hmm. like people are deeply unwell. Mm-hmm. So you got to be careful and you don't know where people are at. And so that created for a while, I mean, I, I'm seeing someone and, and all of that. You know, I was I was checking doors and underneath beds because I I couldn't I I'm like I got to keep my family safe, mm-hmm. and through the course of time and therapy and just kind of learning, I uh, I was able to resolve much of it. Now, to think that I won't have any sort of reaction in the future and all of that, I don't know, but I know now it's much more improved. Um, I think another component of it was that um, in terms of the overall situation. Um, I, I got a ton of support, a lot of love. I appreciate your compassion, by the way. Um, I think that that was a provided for a kind of a corrective experience over time. Um, when you have really good people and encouragement around you, it doesn't offset the trauma, but it it gives you the Lego pieces that you need to work through it. Sometimes we need, um, we we actually need legitimate encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, this person also too, I mean, I don't know that I brought this up publicly, but the Rolling Stone article that came out, when that came out, um, there were some people or whatever that actually, um, when that letter came out, responded to my, my group practice 
in saying, hey, Kyle's in this group or whatever, and try to throw me under the bus. What was crazy, and the reason why I'm bringing it up is, is my colleagues had my back where, wow. I mean, and, and so again, these there are people who will stalk you mm-hmm. and they'll follow you. So you got to be really careful because you really know, you never know exactly who you're dealing with. I don't mean to cause like paranoia on this little beautiful mm-hmm. po- podcast. It's <laughs> I don't good. want people to, you know, but uh, it, that stuff can't happen. Yeah, no, it's good. And, you know, it's good to be aware of it. And I think to spread awareness to even the example you gave of how your family went along to set boundaries that you needed to continue to keep yourself safe. So you made Patreon so that you could have, it sounds like a more exclusive community to talk about the, you know, the really polarizing stuff. Yeah. Um, and I remember the Rolling Stone article for those who are like, what's that about? Can you just explain what that was about? Yeah. So, and I want to be very careful about this because it's interesting. No one really talks about it publicly now, um, but the Rolling Stone article is representative of several trauma survivors, sexual trauma assault survivors who have come forward um, regarding uh, incidents of violation that have happened even decades ago. And so with the Rolling Stone magazine did um, is they picked up the lawsuits there's several lawsuits and there's going to be more coming forward i mean if people think this stuff is over it's not even close to over but the literally the beginning of this year the rolling stone article came out with not just allegations but like there was substantiated um violations and um assault that occurred now there's a lot of legalese so i'm not here to say you know from a legal perspective or even from a clinical perspective what you know what's most valid or whatever but when that article came out it kind of put people on notice because last year i was telling people hey guess what this stuff's going to come out like there has been sexual abuse and sexual perpetration on members of this spiritual worldwide community and if you don't think that that's been the case your head is in the sand Mm -hmm. so i was telling people that last year and they're like oh no that that can't be no way and Lo and behold, and I didn't, I knew about the, um, I knew about it before it came out a little bit. Um, I just didn't know about the Rolling Stone article. So anyway, when it came out, it's kind of a flashpoint for, for people. And they're like, oh my goodness, this exists within this ecosystem as well. I can't believe it. And it's like, um, do you know how many books there's written on this type of stuff where I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's okay. It's horrible, but why wouldn't you expect it? And that's, I guess, to my thought is like, why wouldn't you expect that a group of people mm-hmm. are going to have people who do heinous things it, it even under the name of christ it's 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 literally everywhere which is why it's so scary i i feel the balance of like holding the tension between the two as well it's like on one hand it's heinous like you said and should never be accepted but on the other hand it's it's not shocking just knowing like how humans are like no matter what collective group you put humans into whether it's a family a church setting uh you know business corporation like anytime people get together there is going to be messiness and so i know sometimes that can be people have interpreted that side of it as gaslighting like oh mm-hmm. you, you just say like humans make mistakes and nobody's perfect so therefore it's okay you know that this is happening within the church setting how do you help somebody who 
has been through something like that in the church, you know, whether it's um, gaslighting, abuse, sexual, um, psychological, what message do you have for people who are relating to that? Great question. Uh, I think the thing that people have to understand is that safety is paramount. When you look at the research, you look at Brene Brown. Um, I've got all kinds of material where it's you. it starts with safety. Um, you don't really know what someone is thinking until they feel safe. And so I think for a lot of people, at least in the church culture, safety is looked at as sentimentalism. In other words, if I give you a place to be known, um, really the, the point is to correct you constantly. And so I think you have to be really careful about, well, what is your ultimate goal when you're providing space for someone? Because you might end up like what we see in Job with his friends, putting it back on them. Be very careful of people who want to put it back on you. I understand some people when it comes to sort of the victim mentality or whatever, they're just so phobic of being a victim, which is its own thing. I get very curious about as a therapist is why are you so triggered around the idea of being a victim? But regardless, sometimes when we're, when we're really not wanting people to play the victim card to be in the victim role, we can start shooting on them. And when we should on people, we shame them. And it's, it's this should have already mastered everything. That's what shame kind of stands for. And I think that when we, when we communicate with people, we have to give them not just a space to bring their mess or, you know, you know, whatever. We have to give people permission to be a mess. Like you're a mess right now and that's okay. And no one needs you to be anything other than that right now. You're a mess. And so we don't need you to look pretty and, and, you know, whatever, it's communities who provide the space for people to be a mess. And number number two, I think we have to take the long view with people. I think sometimes in cultures that are so focused on growth and so focused on kind of leveling up that they're really not helping people to heal. They're really not helping people to transform. And so in order to do that, you have to provide a space for people where in they know that you take the long view on them and then they can just have the space over time. And I mean, what, it, what would happen if you gave someone 10 years to heal? Now I know for some people they're like, well, it's already been so long and this and that. I'm like, well, the thing about trauma is trauma has very durable effects. And when we go through a traumatic situation, the misconception is, is that when it's over, it's over. No, it's not over. That's not the way it works. Post-traumatic stress disorder means that you have these different things in your body that keep you triggered mm. and ready for that thing. And so a safe place is something, I guess, lastly, I would say that doesn't need you to be anything right now. Like it, we, we really got to strip the agenda out of things. And I think for some people, they need a place like I have people reaching out to me because they have never been able to share their story. And I have to be very careful because some of the you know situations people you know are opening up to me about have legal implications. So I've got you know a part of my team a little bit of a strategy on how to deal with that. But I'm not going to take myself off the map just because there's legal implications. So in safety is providing people with the space and just kind of taking that agenda out of it, is so to speak. 
Yeah, it reminds me because my husband and I were in the campus ministry leading it for four years in Seattle. And wow. yeah, where are you located again? I am in Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska. Nebraska. <laughs> Never been. I loved Seattle. It was so fun. And yeah. honestly, for us, it was like a really healthy experience as far as like us being on staff, the relationships we built. But we've reflected so much since our time in the ministry. And we're like, holy cow, did we harp on behavior modification and having an agenda? That was like our job description. And like what we've been through since stepping out of the ministry, like our marriage went through so much. We were separated on the verge of divorce. And that's when I stumbled upon all of this healing. And what you're saying of just like letting people being a mess be a mess and totally accept them for where they are and like help them bring down the shame by mirroring to them, like total radical acceptance for exactly where they're at of their journey. I am like, holy cow, how much my blinders are on for so long of like being so terrified to hold that kind of space for people and like always wanting to make sure that I'm guiding them and helping them grow, um, but not knowing how to really be good at sitting with them in those places. I'm curious why you think it's so hard for a church culture to strip the agenda or let people just be a mess. Yeah, because it, it, it makes, I think, in some ways, people feel powerless. One of the most feared experiences in the emotional cue is powerlessness. Powerlessness is really kind of an important derivative in terms of what really run. You know what what we what we run from runs us. So, if I am deathly afraid of feeling powerless or helpless then I will have a lot of different adaptations in my life. I will prop myself up in such a way wherein I'm, I will not be powerless. I will not be a victim. I will not be helpless. I will not be where I can't whatever. And I just think that I've noticed a lot of the communities, a lot of faith communities feel very powerless. When I think of the pandemic, the pandemic made a lot of communities feel very powerless. When I think about the racial tension, that has made a lot of communities feel very powerless. Mm -hmm. The politics. And, and again, a lot of these things have to do with culture. So I think one of the biggest things that make churches feel very powerless is culture. In other words, you know, we fear culture. It's not something to be feared. It's culture is a co-laborer. If you understand it, that's what Paul understood about culture. Mm. It was a co-laborer. He didn't run from culture. The point I'm making in it is that churches really, to some degree, a lot of churches, I can't generalize too much here. I have to be very careful. But I think there are a lot of churches who feel from scripture that their call is to make disciples, that that is what the church exists for. And that's a very flat rendering of the church. If you look at what the church really is throughout the New Testament, that's very flat. In other words, the church is a place where, you know, Greek widows and Hebrew widows can exist. The church is a place where Jews and Gentiles and all their cultural differences can exist. The church is a place where people are like, wait, what do you believe about baptism? Okay, let's reteach that. Like, it's a place where, like, it's not clean. And I think that when something is not clean, it's really hard for program. 
it's really hard when you want to produce a measurable result. And there's nothing more that makes certain churches with a specific culture around evangelism feel powerless than a lot of these things that we would call really distractions. The things that I've mentioned that have been disorienting and made many people feel de-skilled. I think that that powerlessness is something people seek to manage mm. and they will do what they have to in order to manage it. And I think that's where, you know, we're human. The church is human, you know? And so mm -hmm. I, I, I also have compassion at the same time. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the first step of AA? Like admitting that you are powerless. I think that's the first step of the 12 step program, but <laughs> it's so hard, right? Oh. Um, our ego seeks control. If we've been through anything that's put us in survival mode, all we want is control. So it makes sense. Yeah, we can have compassion on the one hand, but I just love these conversations too. I think it's important. It's when we don't talk about them and we go silent that a lot can fester. That's unhealthy. Mm. So speaking of, you know, um, messy and unclear. One area in the evangelical church right now is that is unclear and messy and polarizing is same-sex attraction. And we're recording this in June, so it's Pride Month. I don't know when this will air, but I this has been on my heart because I have a very close friend who is deeply hurt by the church just over his own winding journey of finally coming out as gay. And, you know, he describes his time in the teen ministry where there's just a lot of toxic masculinity that manifested mm -hmm. itself into push-up contests and humiliation. And then his time in the campus ministry where he was once told that he needed to start liking football to be more related, you know, relatable to his brothers in Christ. And he tried so hard, like he tried in his own words, to heal his homosexuality. And he sought professional therapy, all the things. I watched him for years, you know, doing everything he could. But it eventually got to the point where he um, pursued a relationship with his now partner and he was asked to leave the church. And he ended up sobbing, you know, for months, just grieving because he loved the church. You know, it was like all of a sudden his community was cut off and, um, fast forward, you know, he's no longer a part of the church right now, but misses it, but feels like he's not allowed in and is still living with his partner. And he's just hurting. And mm. it's created a lot of division in his family too. Like his family doesn't accept this. And it's, I just see so much fracturing. Mm -hmm. I know this is a common one. Um, what message do you have for the person in this position or somebody who loves somebody in this position? Oh, my heart breaks because there's so many layers to this. I've I've actually covered covered this on my channel. Um, I had Ellen Ratcliffe join uh, for one of my uh, conversations, and one of the things she really illuminated. Uh, she works with Guy Hammond mm -hmm. um, in the Strength and Weakness uh, Ministry. And on one hand, you do have the biblical sexual ethic that that scriptures outline. So at some point, I think that. The, the scriptures speak on the issue, but I think that what people do, and I see this in a lot of areas, they will take something in the scriptures and then they will hide behind that and they will hide their love behind that. They will hide their compassion behind mm. that. They will just disconnect relationally from the person, which is a very inhumane move. That's a, it, that, that's a counter that, that really 
that's not actually in sync with the scripture. Even though the scripture does have ways of of being, especially when it comes to partnering and, and sexuality and so forth, when people hide behind that, that, that tells you something. When we're not vulnerable, we're managing something. And so it just feels like with this whole conversation, what the more and more conversations I have with people is that Christians end up hiding behind the scriptures. And it's this, we want to push you away. We want to sort of remove you from the equation because we already have so many issues. And I just think it's unbelievably inhumane when we hide behind the scriptures and then it's like, well, but this is what the scripture says. And then we, you just, you see it. People get really cold and calloused. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa, you're missing what the scriptures are saying. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting when, um, when Jesus confronts the, you know, the rich young ruler, um, obviously it's in, it's, I think it's in, in Luke and it says that he looked at him and he loved him. And I'm just like, man, even when, like, this is the master, either, either way it goes, no matter what you believe, like how loving are you really being? Cause I think that's ultimately what puts people, whatever taste in the mouth, like they know people won't agree and so forth like that. But for some reason, and I might even ask you this for some reason, people pull back their hearts. That's, that's the attachment injury in my mind is mm -hmm. when you pull back your heart, you pull back your affection from a person who has a lifestyle choice that you don't agree with, I get it. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But who says you have to pull back your affection? Mm -hmm. That's that's what hurts my heart. And so I don't I I I guess I'd like to know kind of where your perspective is with it as well as we're having this. Yeah. It hurts my heart too. It what comes to mind is as you say that, the pulling back of an affection and that's the attachment wound reminds me of the study they did on babies, you know, where the mother's present and oogling and googling and interacting and the baby's all happy and then all of a sudden the mom stonewalls her face and doesn't make any expression and just like doesn't interact back the baby freaks out we know the baby freaks out if the mom actually leaves you know their presence but even if the mom is still there and she's just like not giving any kind of interaction back then the baby loses its mind and i feel like we're all just grown-up babies that do the same thing <laughs> with these different attachment wounds yeah. and so i think the biggest thing for me is just the conversation it is not an easy thing to answer in five minutes left of a podcast but it's more of like where can we create more space and safety to have conversations maybe between two super polarizing sides polarizing sides that they don't agree at all with one another's perspective but there's a safety of being able to communicate it and still feel radical acceptance for that person separate mm -hmm. from whatever they're choosing to to do with their life or their behaviors um so i think that's what it boils down to for me like there's a million polarizing topics but at the end of the day the biggest harm is i see the fractures that it creates in relationships and families um and so that's my two cents kyle mm -hmm. But when you think about all the different arguments and polarizing topics and denominational fractures that happen in religion and have for centuries, is there anything like any phrase or idea that just helps center you and kind of simplify the chaos? Um, I think that probably the biggest thing that I'm I'm learning. Mark Twain had a comment about you know history was it history doesn't um, repeat itself. 
but it rhymes. Mm. It rhymes. And, you know, a lot of these fracturings that we're seeing and so forth like that, it rhymes. I will, I will say the time in history that we're in is unlike any other. We are seeing, uh, like with social media, technology and so forth like that, we are in a, in a, in a like a millennia type of like shift right mm-hmm. now. We're in the midst of it. I talked to Michael Burns and he he talks about this too, like however so many millennia. Now, although we are kind of at a new, like this is a new era, um, there are certain things that just don't change. It, people want connection. Mm-hmm. This is my ultimate thing. I guess if I had to, you know, end it with one thing, it would be people want connection. That's the one thing I always mm-hmm. try to remember, whoever they are, people want connection. Doesn't matter what's going on, this and that. I mean, it does matter, but at the the bottom of that, people want connection. I love that. That's just an amazing summary. And you had so many quotable one-liners today, too. Just like, can you repeat for me the should? You said when we're all shooting on each other, should stands for should have already mastered everything. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Shame. Sorry. Shame stands Shame. for should. Yeah. Should have already I mastered everything. So it's an actual acronym. I love that. And then, and did you say that you, did you say that you have, um, trauma, like trauma survivors, like women that Mm -hmm. have been through a specific type of. Yeah. My listeners and clients, it's mostly women who have been through abandonment, abuse, um, of some sort, whether it's physical, sexual, psychological, um, struggling a lot with anxiety from, yeah, whether it's within church setting or relationship setting or family setting. Uh, maybe at some point we'll have another conversation in my practice. Um, may, most, a lot of the women I've worked with were, were trauma survivors. Um, I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much I would love to unpack more. Um, but this was a rich tease for those who haven't gotten to meet you or hear from you yet. It's so funny because I've listened to you for years. So your voice is super familiar to me. But I've never <laughs> had the back and forth. And I just want to thank you. For coming on today and just sharing all of this and for those who want to go follow your podcast if this resonates and i highly encourage you to it's so good um where can they find that and find you absolutely so you can go on youtube uh truth trauma theology uh on youtube or on podcasts it's on all the major podcasts um i also if you want to support me and also get uh more in-depth uh, tools, resources. You can support me on Patreon. That's uh, Patreon slash Kyle Spears. And uh, thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming, Kyle. Can't wait for round two. Appreciate you. You bet. Uh, I'm honored you found today's episode worth your listen and time to hang out with me today. You know, for some of us, this podcast is just the thing you need to support you towards your breakthrough. But for others, we know we need a deeper level of support and guidance. So if you're a highly ambitious woman who's ready to repair deep, unshakable connection in your marriage, I'd love to tell you about my client coaching program called Root to Rise. This is the life-changing transformational container that will teach you exactly how to launch your marriage to the next level by moving trauma out of your body and stepping back into your power. Even if you've already tried everything, even if you're caught on the fence of should I stay or should I go, and even if your husband's not on board today. 
So look for my link in the show notes to book a call with me and we'll just talk about what's working, what's not, where you want to go. And very easily, I'll be able to tell you if and how I can help you. And if not me, I can still point you in the direction of some resources that can. So either way, tons of clarity. We'll have some fun getting to know each other while we're at it. And that's it for today. Huge hugs, my friend. I'll chat with you next Friday.